Welcome to Before the Coats, a podcast dedicated to helping students learn more about the fields they wish to pursue through conversations with pre-meds and healthcare professionals. This podcast is brought to you by the Culture of Medicine Committee at the UC Berkeley chapter of the American Medical Student Association, or AMSA. We're your hosts, and we're so excited to be here today. I'm Ayush. I'm Christine. In this episode, we'll be talking to John Alva, an EMT instructor and paramedic that will be giving us some insight into his career, day-to-day life, and experiences. So starting off, John, would you like to give us a little like intro about your personal background, how you became a paramedic, and kind of any moment that made you realize you wanted to become an EMT slash paramedic? Yeah, so um, thank you, first of all, for having me on here. Uh, it's a pretty good honor to uh, be a part of this. Um, I actually started out uh, as a uh, rare breed, as a born and raised here in San Diego. Um, not too many of us by the sounds of it. But um, so born and raised here in San Diego, I uh, started to notice that uh, I liked the concept of being able to help people, even as a kid. Uh, I grew up actually in a fire station, if you will. My, my dad was actually a firefighter. And um, so I grew up in a station, kind of running around, seeing what he does, being exposed to that, helping others um, concepts basically. And um, I remember there was this point when I was a, a kid that um, there was a neighbor, it was a, an older lady. She was like the, the grandmother of like the neighborhood. Um, she actually uh, had burned some food on the stove and it put a bunch of smoke in the house. It was like, it wasn't a fire, but it just put a lot of smoke in. And I remember actually going in there and having her walk out. So it was my little, my little moment as a, as a kid, I was probably like eight or 10 years old, but that was kind of my blog. Like, oh, that was, that was pretty fun, Not fun, but <laughs> nonetheless, but, you know, pretty good uh, experience to help, help her out. Uh, and ever since then, I just always have been a part of it. Um, I uh, became an EMT when I was uh, 17 years old. I actually almost missed my high school graduation um, because it was on the same day that uh, the first day of class was. So it was uh, a <laughs> yeah, pretty good experience with that. But I took a summer class uh, for EMT here at Miramar College, actually, some kind of that uh, full circle, um, you know, story, if you will, uh, in 2004, and then became an EMT. And my goal initially was to be a, actually a firefighter. And uh, once I kind of got into the, the whole world of being an EMT and emergency medical services, working on an ambulance, I, I realized that I liked the medical side of it a whole bunch. And then I got into the teaching side of it, teaching like CPR classes, teaching other training type classes. And, and uh, it just kind of clicked. It clicked with me that between medical and training and teaching, that was kind of my, my little you know, niche, if you will. And so I kind of moved sideways a little bit from being a firefighter to taking this more in a full-time capacity. Um, I started training, um, being an EMT trainer here at Miramar College. And uh, kind of moving up the ranks, if you will, as an adjunct instructor. Now I'm fortunate enough to have a contract faculty position here at Miramar uh, for the EMT program now. And um, teaching my own classes and um, <clears throat> being able to be a part of it. So and kind of seeing the whole background work of it as faculty uh, versus an adjunct, meaning actually helping develop their curriculum, um, develop um, equipment that's going to be used, you know, uh, just the training process between students. So, um, and then I became, uh, like I said, uh, like you mentioned, a paramedic in uh, 2013. So I was an EMT for several years with several 
kind of random backgrounds of, of EMT work. Um, but when I became a paramedic, I started working on a 911 ambulance. And uh, from there, I, uh, like I said, moved into the training world. But uh, it's very unique enough as it is with an EMT, um, with the training that I've done, the CPR classes, other training classes. Uh, I actually kind of randomly, I uh, moved to Idaho uh, for a couple of years. And uh, in Idaho, I actually worked in the hospital as a tech. So not only do I have the pre-hospital ambulance experience, but I actually worked in the hospital and have the in-hospital experience, which actually helped me train and teach EMT students. Uh, a lot of our EMT students that we get come from both worlds wanting to be firefighters because it's a prerequisite to be a firefighter, to be an EMT. And also uh, a lot of our in-hospital um, pursuing uh, students, as far as like nurse, PA, uh, pre-med, uh, obviously uh, nurse practitioner and all the other um, you know, possibilities, you know, for in-hospital uh, careers. Uh, it actually helped me relay that information where all students can actually understand what I'm trying to uh, um, deliver. And uh, so I worked uh, up in Idaho as uh, ER tech. I actually worked in the OR as a surgical assistant, um, actually helping <clears throat> with like surgical procedures. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. Um, it was kind of, uh, an on-the-job training kind of a situation where I was actually uh, taught to like scrub in and do an instrument counts and actually not actually do the actual surgery itself. You know, that's obviously with the, the physicians, but uh, but actually training how to actually hand off equipment, learning the sterile technique, and so um, and then from there I uh, end up working at a plasma donation center. Uh, plasma donation center is pretty pretty unique enough uh, as it is with that. Uh, so drawing blood as a phlebotomist, um, medical uh, processor uh, for uh, intake for patients. So um, as this medical supervisor, I would do evaluations for patients to see if they're able to donate plasma and uh, kind of seeing the whole process with it. And all this was as an EMT. So it was a, it was a pretty good experience uh, with that. There was no other classes that I really did. It was kind of... Um, Sounds a little rougher, but on the job training, if you will, uh, to get these additional um, privileges. So it's uh, it's definitely been a pretty interesting process throughout the past uh, numerous years here, but uh, still excited to be a part of it. Wow, that's really interesting because I was just going to, I guess later in the um, interview, but ask like what other things you could do with EMT certification rather than just being an EMT because. Um, if everyone doesn't know, John was my instructor. <laughs> um, so as like a person who's just gotten their um, certification, I feel like there's options for just being a regular EMT, but I feel like not many people know the other pathways that you could go with that same certification. Right, right. I, I definitely agree. And I'd be more than happy to discuss that. There's multiple options uh, with an EMT certification that uh, people can take. So how did you get into like in terms of like surgery or like plasma donation? Cause I know like at least in our course, we didn't do much. We didn't do like blood drawing or like things like that. Right. So um, when I actually applied to these uh, locations, it was a requirement to be an EMT. There was no other certification beyond the national registry uh, EMT certification that that's provided just by taking a class like at Miramar. Um, and then from there, it's literally an orientation you're given through this um, in-house uh, class session, if you will, uh, on the process of it, 
Um, you're put with a, a field training officer. You're kind of put through the, the process with it. And it, it, and it really is kind of on the job training with that, you know, given it's going to be a little bit more extensive as far as actually uh, being a, a phlebotomist um, in a, a plasma donation center or else drawing blood. I did that in the hospital as well. I used to draw blood for labs and blood cultures, uh, collecting other uh, culture specimens uh, as well. So it's, you're taught that in, in the, the proper way to collect specimens as well. So it's not just, okay, here you go. You're actually, you're signed off and, and through the hospital and through the uh, donation center, you're basically certified through there. That's super interesting. I guess like the juxtaposition of, you know, taking a course on something and then actually like experiencing it or being taught like on the spot, as you said, uh, you had been in several occasions. So I guess off of that, I was wondering if you could kind of detail the process. Uh, it takes the educational pathway that leads to a career as an EMT. Sure. Uh, now, um, that pathway to being an EMT is actually um, pretty straightforward uh, compared to other areas where it's obviously more involved, like pre-med, uh, pre-nursing, and these other advanced level uh, practitioners. Uh, but for being an EMT, it's taking a semester course, you know, like for example, here at Miramar College. Uh, we, you know, to the, to the pat, fact, excuse me, um, the fact that it's basically a semester course that can be taken in the summer, we have seven week classes, 16 week classes, and just this class. Uh, we do have, at least for our uh, college specifically, we do have a, a two day supplemental course that we have students take um, that provides additional training um, within the capacity of being an EMT, such as delivering Narcan for patients of opiate overdoses, uh, delivering um, epinephrine or an EpiPen for patients with allergic reactions and, and assessing uh, blood glucose levels on patients using a glucometer. So there's uh, that and actually a form of innovation, uh, innovation that's that's uh, EMT students are, are trained and here in San Diego County are uh, able to utilize. Um, it's just the, so just that two day uh, supplemental course, which is a prerequisite, and then our main EMT class. From there, students are once they're successful, they're able to take the, the National Registry uh, cognitive exam which is uh, recognized by basically all the states here in the United States. Um, it's actually, uh, it can be recognized elsewhere, even throughout the world, uh, in some cases that I've heard of other countries um, may identify as well. But in order to obtain state certification, you have to have a national registry certification in a lot of cases. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, the standard of care, if you will, um, it's, it's understood that you have that, you know, by having this national registry certification. So with my uh, national registry certification here in California, um, I can actually go, for example, to Idaho and obtain a state certification to practice being an EMT over there. So uh, it's, it's transferable, essentially. Nice. Uh, it seems kind of like fairly straightforward, you know, looking at it with the course that you have to take and then the exam. But I guess I was wondering um, two things. So for the course, are there any prerequisites for that? Because I know some courses require like a BLS certification. And then also what the timeline is like for taking the course and then doing the exam. Okay. 
Uh, as far as any prerequisites, we do uh, here at Miramar College specifically, we do have our students have a CPR certification. Uh, so a BLS provider CPR card, which is basically an eight hour day, uh, American Heart Association or American Red Cross, uh, which would our, our program identifies. Um, so just that CPR card. And uh, as far as prerequisites, we do have our students have their immunizations because they do uh, partake in clinical rotations into the hospital. And part of that agreement is that our students um, have their immunizations, uh, including like their COVID-19 vaccine uh, as well, uh, TB tests, flu shots, and um, you know, a few other immunizations. So that way they can participate in actual you know, care of patients in there as well. Um, but actual course prerequisites, we don't have any prerequisites. That's why it's, it's pretty straightforward. Other colleges, I know like uh, Southwestern College, they do have a prerequisite course that they offer. So it kind of varies, but generally speaking, um, there's no real other prerequisite besides having a CPR certification, which would be an eight hour day that we offer or can be taken elsewhere as well. Uh, once that process is, is, uh, is done, then you have an option of, we have a 16 week class, which is the usual you know, full semester course. We have a seven week short-term class and um, usually about a seven week or eight week uh, summer class that we have. So kind of all throughout the, the year we have classes. And um, now, especially with the, uh, our transition kind of back to an in-person setting, we usually do have an intercession class, which is one month. So a one month EMT class as well. So it kind of varies as far as the timeline. It depends on the needs of the students. We try to accommodate as much as possible. Uh, obviously students uh, are kind of in a crunch for time, trying to meet prerequisites for their own you know, pursuits of their careers or else even just they go to work. So that's why we do have night classes as well that accommodates it to night schedules, day schedules, morning schedules. Um, but once they finish the class of whatever time period they, they selected, then the process afterward could be just a couple of weeks to obtain that national registry certification and essentially that uh, state and local uh, county certification. It could be a matter of weeks. Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Okay, so moving into a little more like after you get your certification and now you're on the job, what would you say is like the bread and butter of what you do? Like the, the um, most common procedure you usually perform, most common conditions you usually see? So initially when EMTs first get their certification, um, commonly a lot of our EMT students, well, all of them, whether they're pursuing a firefighter, paramedic type career or in hospital, uh, type career, a lot of them will commonly start uh, together on an ambulance um, to get that experience at least. And now that ambulance, commonly they'll end up working what's called a BLS level ambulance, basic five support, which consists of two EMTs that have um, basic first aid equipment on an ambulance. And this uh, type of ambulance is commonly used for um, what we call inter-facility transfers. So patients that are hospitalized being discharged to rehabilitation facilities or vice versa, or um, what we have deem as a downgraded or lower acuity uh, 911 call even. So we do have EMTs on a BLS ambulance, basic life support ambulance that will respond on um, 911 calls as well. But a lot of the, the work is actually put into these inter-facility transfers um, interact with patients, transfer them to dialysis centers. Um, that's a, usually a pretty good start. 
uh, for them. And, and then from there, what happens is they can go to other companies, for example, like American Medical Response, uh, where I work, which provides 911 uh, trans or 911 uh, emergency services as well as BLS services. And our EMTs will actually transfer from this interfacility BLS level ambulance, and then they can transfer to work with, like with me as a paramedic, and then run actual 911 advanced to you know more acute level calls. So. Awesome. So I guess transitioning into like how to be how to be an effective EMT because you know as you're dealing with these situations you can be you know in a very vulnerable sort of position uh, and so can of course everyone around you. So I guess my question is what traits do you think that you display or a a strong EMT would display um, that would provide the most support to your team and to the patients that you're working with? Now, um, it's actually a very interesting question because sometimes it's kind of uh, perceived that knowing the equipment and, and operation of a gurney and, and actual hard equipment, like some of the equipment behind me, but um, that's actually not too bad. The, the actual meat and potatoes, if you will, of uh, learning is actually critical thinking, which can be applied to anything, whether it's pre-hospital or in-hospital career paths. Critical thinking is, is very much so a, a big part of it. And, and sometimes it can take a second for some people to, to get a feel for that critical thinking, because uh, at least with an EMT class, what we show, we train basically an algorithm of, okay, if the person is unconscious, well, we have a whole different path to go down. If they're not, you know, if they're awake, well, then we have a whole different list, series of questions to ask, you know, or else if we can't communicate with them for some reason, or, you know, their, their status is too acute to sit there and ask a series of questions, we need to go down another route. So that critical thinking, I believe, is, is a tremendous um, attribute to somebody to be successful, or at least an entry level EMT. Now to, to grow on that and gain experience, even to this day, um, all these years later, I've been in it. Uh, that critical thinking is still very applicable and still a learning process. You know, I can I can never say I can, oh yeah, yeah, we're perfect at it. No, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And there's some situations where, well, hmm, I don't know, you know, where, where this kind of goes. So that's why we rely on our team as well. Uh, even for a paramedic, sometimes I'll rely on my EMT because maybe he or she saw something that maybe I didn't see. And they use their critical thinking to, hey, maybe I should, you know, let the other person know that. So critical thinking, and then honestly, just being able to interact and communicate with somebody. Um, it's, it's kind of funny enough, uh, a lot of the times in my EMT class, what I, I tell students is that um, they have a homework assignment, go to the store and just start a conversation with the cashier. Or, you know, hey, how's it going? And you do that kind of rhetorical type question. Uh, how's it going? you know, great. How, how are you? How's your day going? Oh, how's, how's the shift going? Hopefully it's going pretty well. Just that small communication actually is a good learning uh, technique. And in some cases, uh, it's funny. I tell some of my students, go do karaoke. The best way to be able to do something and uh, build some confidence is go do karaoke. Uh, whether it be at home or, you know, go to some, you know, somewhere else that has karaoke, but to at least build that confidence to be able to, to communicate to others. This is the other huge, just great important part because 
if you walk into someone's house that you've never been into before, um, obviously in most cases what we go into, or meet somebody that I've never seen before, and within the first few minutes, I have to be able to ask them pretty specific questions. And sometimes they're pretty intimate questions regarding their condition. That's, you know, if I look highly uncomfortable, just crawling in my own skin, just to be in front of another person, what are the odds that they're going to want to communicate with me this information? So in a way, it can potentially delay some patient care or at least delay some assessment. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be necessarily a, you know, critical and detrimental, but it can delay the process and it can delay our treatment potentially. Because if I don't have the information, even as an EMT, maybe I don't know that I do need to apply oxygen to this patient or uh, take them to another specialty that possible because I felt uncomfortable asking these questions. So honestly, it's um, <clears throat> being able to have critical thinking and just interact, carry a conversation with people. I love karaoke. Ayush is a singer, actually. <laughs> there we go. See? Um, yeah, no, it's very interesting how much of healthcare is, is, is so human. I think we get lost in like the science of it all and like the procedures of it all, but most of it is actually just like interacting with another human being and like building that trust immediately, hopefully. Um, so in like, in terms of like those skills, I mean, I hope that you can share this with us, but is there some, like, is there like your most interesting case where you like had like you thought very critically really quickly where you're like wow this is a perfect story to tell my class uh let's see here um well that's uh several stories but uh and you know that's a very common question that i get obviously as a paramedic and be over the years experience and you know what's the most interesting call or you know different call you've been on and throughout the years, I've been through on multiple different occasions. Sometimes they're, they're funny where um, I had one person get their hand stuck in a soda machine and because uh, he was trying to steal a soda. And uh, they actually had to destroy the entire soda machine uh, in order to get his hand out because his watch got stuck. And it was, it was a whole process. So something funny like that I've had where kids get uh, crayons. I had one where he had a, a crayon stuck in his ear. Um, and we look in his ear and sure enough, it was a green friend, you know, in, in his ear. So these, you know, kind of funny ones. Uh, and then obviously it transitions to some of the more serious, unfortunate ones, uh, loss of life. Uh, obviously those ones are, are, can be pretty intense at times. And even there's some cases where it can be triggering for, you know, specific people, you know, unfortunately I've been on calls that involve children, um, being injured or ill. Um, and those calls obviously Put that critical thinking. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there was a call <clears throat> that was quite memorable to me that we had. Um, it was about a three-month-old uh, infant that uh, actually had some respiratory illnesses. Uh, mother had been trying to get the child treated, uh, urgent care, and you know just trying to you know treat the child. But this child had some uh, pretty bad respiratory uh, um, conditions. And to the point that in the back of my ambulance, this child stopped breathing for a period of a couple of minutes. So that critical thinking, okay, that going down that algorithm in my brain, like, okay, hang on. Now I have a, not only a person, but a child that's not breathing, which actually brings another algorithm of how we interact with that compared to an adult. So transitioning into this, this you know, treatment mode versus, okay, we're just gonna provide some oxygen, 
you know, pretty straightforward call, but all of a sudden this child stops breathing. You know, that's, the, that's like the ultimate, um, you know, moment and uh, being able to react and uh, for what it's worth, think calmly, you know, you know, in this pretty high stressful situation with that. So, you know, I've had that call. I've had you know, calls where, you know, there's acts of violence. Uh, unfortunately, you know, in cases there's shooting, stabbings that have been on, which can be pretty overwhelming to the point that we've had cases or calls where there's multiple people involved. So how to interact when I have one person here that's injured, but in the way we uh, process patients or triage, if you will, this person right here, unfortunately, is not going to be very viable compared to the other three people. So having that basically moment where I have to walk away from that person, that, that's, that, that takes a lot. You know, it goes, it feels like it almost goes against everything we learned, you know, as a healthcare provider, you know, to walk away from somebody that's injured, you know, obviously I want to help them, but if I have three other people that are viable, you know, it, it really opens up that, that moment. But, uh, you know, and then seeing the other part of it, as far as healthcare, healthcare is obviously a very hot topic you know, in the United States regarding to insurance and financial burden. We see that side of it as well, where people use 911 as their form of healthcare. They don't have a healthcare provider. They don't have insurance to contact. So we see a lot of that. And unfortunately, at least in our field, sometimes we see that as, um, uh, abusing the system, abusing 911. But in the, the grand, the bigger picture of it, it's more of a lack of healthcare uh, to, to patients. And we have to be that provider, for them, you know, at times, and then relay that information to try and get them help. I've had people call 911 because they ran out of testing strips for their glucometer to check their blood sugar because they have diabetes. And in some cases, you know, we see that as, oh, that's, that's a, that's a nothing call. We are 911. I went through life and sirens. But looking at the big picture, this person has no money to buy testing strips. So, you know, there's still that compassion that we're still, we're still going to show uh, for these people. It's still their emergency. You know, as much as I, you know, train people and teach people about these high acuity calls and life-threatening conditions, there's still a lot, most of it, and what we do is, is just talking to people, interacting with people, dealing with their perceived emergencies, then I'm going to, you know, interact with that as best as I can and still respect, you know, what they, what they want to tell us. Wow. Thank you so much for, I mean, detailing your experiences. I think that that was really just interesting to see from your perspective, um, what you've witnessed from the funny to the strange, to the sad, to the scary. Um, it definitely communicates to me that becoming an EMT and being an EMT uh, takes a certain kind of maturity uh, to be able to move through that and um, deal with things in the best way. And like you said, triage. Um, and I guess it makes me realize that, you know, a lot of pre-medical, pre-professional, pre-healthcare um, students tend to pursue EMT. Um, and I see why now, because, you know, you learn a lot through EMT. Yes. So, I guess I wanted to ask, what skills do you think, um, you know, pre-healthcare students could take away from their experience as an EMT and apply that to other medical careers, whether they're physicians or nurses or PAs or, you know, whatever else? Um, 
you know, and I actually have a very good example uh, of that. One of the first uh, few classes, one or two classes I ever taught, um, there was a student that she became an EMT and actually ended up working at AMR and actually became my, my partner on a 911 ambulance. She actually is in her fourth year right now at medical school. And uh, I keep in contact with her every once in a while. And she says one of the biggest things that's helped her, kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, is being able to interact with people. She says that during her past, you know, three years now, three years, and you know, starting her fourth year now, she had mentioned that she's come across people in her class that are extremely intelligent, you know, great people. But when they're put in these scenarios or put into a clinical setting, there's a bit of a disconnect and kind of a struggle for them to apply that information. Being able to apply the information that's gained, that's a very difficult Um, because she even mentioned that even though everyone's doing very well in the class, everyone has great, you know, amazing grades and that's not an issue, but to apply that, she says, she uh, had told me that there is a definitely a, that's where people start kind of parting ways and you see that disconnect a little bit. So um, I I know I kind of keep mentioning it, but being able to interact with people that can, can go a long way. In our field in EMS, EMTs and paramedics equally, you know, I, I tell my students as well, I can teach anybody to, to use an oxygen mask or to turn on an oxygen bottle, but to be able to communicate with somebody, that's very difficult because sometimes we get people that are very um, kind of reserved, not, um, not as much interactive. They're very smart. Uh, you know, a lot of my students, Glenn uh, Christine, very smart, um, you know, very success, successful in the program. But uh, they tell me that sometimes um, when they come back from their clinical rotations that's required for our program, that they had a kind of a difficult time interacting with people or the nurses or the hustle and bustle or being exposed to that just high stress, um, where I've actually had some students transition from, okay, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I want to do more of a clinical, like office type setting or, you know, clinic uh, setting versus like emergency room. So they kind of kind of switch, you know, slightly different pathways, uh, which is, I believe, is a great experience for the students as well. You know, this is the quickest, easiest, even cheapest way to figure out what they want to do in the healthcare setting. Um, I've had students that are very much wanting to be a paramedic and a firefighter in the field, but then they do one rotation in the hospital and completely change majors to nursing or pre-med altogether within the semester. And it just kind of blows me away you know, that, wow, that's, it really had an impact on them, that they really enjoyed it. So I would believe just honestly interacting with people. That's why I say start now, talk to the person at the, at the store, or cashier, or um, anybody, you know, somebody that calls or, oh, it's the wrong number. Hey, well, how's your day going? Or, you know, whatever, karaoke, like you mentioned earlier. So, but uh, just interacting, because that's what we do in healthcare, whether it be pre-hospital or in-hospital, we, we interact with people. And they're going to be at their worst time when we interact with them. So we have to be ready for that. Yeah, I know when I, um, at least when I signed up to like for the EMT course, the way that I was thinking about it was more in the sense that like being an EMT is a very high stress situation. And if I couldn't do that, there's no way that I could handle it in the hospital like years from now. So that's like kind of like um, a preemptive <laughs> choice to make sure that you could handle that type of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of 
like so being an EMT is very stressful and it also can weigh down as like um on your mental health as well seeing some things that are not as um happy how um does your day-to-day life look like and how do you take care of your mental health as well as like um making time for yourself and your work schedule and social life um you know that's that's a very that's a very big question um mental health obviously another very hot topic you know throughout the country and throughout the world even um it's it it can be a lot and i i try to warn students that some people may be exposed to things that not too ideal that human beings don't usually come into contact with every single day. You know, it's funny enough to say, oh, there's a fan stuck in the ear. But um, when I was 18, 19 years old as an EMT, that was the first time I was handed a lifeless baby. And um, that kind of made me grow up really quickly. You know, to be able to grow up that fast, being 18, 19 years old, to be literally handed a baby that was not alive. You know, that's that that was a big moment. <clears throat> one of the biggest moments that I've had. Um, and throughout the years, you know, as I mentioned, it, being exposed to numerous types of incidents, acts of violence, car crashes, illnesses, people um, of medical conditions that, that die out in the field, you know, having, being a paramedic now, I'm the person that actually delivers that information to the family members in the other room. And that, that is a huge talk that I, I never thought in a pre-hospital setting I would ever have to do. You know, I thought, okay, that's a doctor. That's that's an advanced healthcare provider than me as a paramedic. But I do it, unfortunately, quite a bit where I have to walk into the room and explain, my name is John. I'm the paramedic overseeing, um, you know, your family member here. Their heart had stopped. We attempted resuscitation and, and then talking with the physician on the radio, we both concluded that this, they're not going to respond to resuscitation. So we pronounced them deceased. So having to give that talk multiple times over the years, obviously weighs um, a lot <clears throat> on mental health. And one thing I, I realized, having grown up in a healthcare type household with my, my dad being a, a firefighter, it was a little bit easier having to have someone there. And then even like my, my mom, who has, was used to hearing that as well, I, I was pretty fortunate to have that someone to talk to. But I kind of warn my students that those that don't really have that luxury, you know, I call it almost a luxury to have someone to talk to at home, be careful how you bring that home to a significant other or a family member that's maybe not in that healthcare setting. They could be in accounting, that they're not used to hearing something like that. And all of a sudden I say, hey, I was on this really bad call, X, Y, Z, and now I just huge, you know, shock to that person. So unfortunately, I've heard out where people just kind of internalize it and, you know, there's no other way to release it. So one thing that I, I've done over the years is, you know, just be with family. Um, I have a five-year-old uh, daughter, she's five going on 15, but, um, you know, I, I spend time with my family. You know, I, I tell my students, if they have a hobby, you know, do your hobby. Try for what it's worth, at least. That's a loaded statement, but for what it's worth, leave work at work. When you're home, you're home. Um, you know, for what it's worth, try to do that. Um, and one thing I've done actually for the past uh, couple of years now, probably about two, probably about two and a half years, I've actually been going to therapy uh, over it. And I've mentioned it to my students um, every once in a while. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of mention it, but 
I mentioned in a way that it shouldn't be seen as, oh, you're going to therapy. Oh, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're broken or, oh my gosh, that's not good. And especially for students that are going down a, a fire kind of a route where typically students that go down a fire route, it's, you know, can be very ego driven. Um, that's just kind of the personality. And so they think that if they go to therapy, oh, I'm not going to be hireable. I can't do that. And like, I tell them, no, use that as an advantage. Hey, I'm actually trying to deal with my mental health by talking to, to a trained professional about it. Um, you know, and so that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years, just to kind of make sure I'm, you know, I'm not internalizing some of the stuff that I've been having over the past what, 16 years or so. And, um, you know, it, it helps, you know, it, it's, it's good to kind of get that off your chest and talk to somebody about it, you know, how you feel. But, um, you know, I try to, you know, impress on the students that, hey, it's okay to go to therapy. You know, don't make it seem like it's a bad thing. You know, dealing with mental health, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's been a very hot topic. People that unfortunately may die by suicide, um, you know, the rates in healthcare can, are, can be pretty high. Um, over the past 16 years, unfortunately, I know of at least uh, seven or eight people that have died by suicide. So it's, it's been, it's been a lot. Or, and I've known even more people that unfortunately will self-medicate and go down this pathway of self-medicating with either alcohol, get into another other realm of like drug use. And, and unfortunately they end up into this different person that they are. So between <clears throat> being with my family, you know, spending a lot of time with my daughter uh, as much as I can, um, going to the zoo, you know, I got a, a year pass and, and there's a lot of miles on it. We're only in, it's only March 1st right now. So, <laughs> um, you know, just, just trying to spend time with family, any hobbies, but, you know, being more serious about mental health, potentially even therapy it doesn't have to be every single day. It could be once a month or, you know, once, once in a while, you know, and, and employers like AMR, for example, offers that employee assistance programs that offers free mental health, um, you know, services where you can see a therapist uh, for free. So they'll pay for that. So it's encouraged at AMR and other companies, um, I'm sure wouldn't be surprised that offer employee assistance programs that offer free mental health services for free paid by the employer. So we should be able to utilize that. Wow, I'm, it's actually really surprising and I'm like glad to hear that companies are also taking into account their employees and providing them that, um, that service. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a great service. Um, so I guess transitioning into, so we've been in this pandemic for a while. Um, and I feel like that probably has changed your, or at least when COVID was um, initially starting, that definitely changed your day-to-day -day life and the calls that you would receive. How did um, that really change um, your job, I guess I would say? Yes, uh, March 2020, that was, that was definitely the turning point for us here at Miramar, you know, being an instructor and then being, um, you know, first responder out in the field, that was a huge culture shock, obviously for, for here and then throughout the entire world. But when COVID first hit, it was a complete mystery of what it even was. Um, we had no idea, concepts, and it, it, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in because for us as responders, we're going into houses, 
you know, we've been in the houses even to this day where the entire family has COVID. And at first it was a huge, like, we need like a, a hazmat team. We need suits. They're issuing, issuing us suits, um, Tyvek suits that, to go in. And, and, you know, we had no idea about this. We would have, we would take an hour to decontaminate our ambulance. And it was, it was definitely overwhelming. Again, for mental health, more strain on us, you know, to, to respond on these calls, you know, clean the ambulance, disinfect it, you know, make sure the patient remains safe at the same time and treatment still provided in a timely manner. That, that was a lot, but that transition um, did take a lot out of us. But fortunately, once uh, we got a better understanding of it, and obviously once the vaccine came out, you know, um, you know, at least for me, you know, once I was vaccinated, it kind of brought a little peace of mind that I'm not invincible necessarily, but at least there's, I have something to kind of back me up a little bit. And, you know, fortunately I've, I've, you know, kind of knock on wood here. I, I've been done pretty good um, at, you know, keeping myself, my family safe um, and just the precautions that we continue to take. And this is a, was a very big moment in practicing what I preach as far as teaching at, at here at Miramar about, you know, standard precautions, you know, seeing safe, you know, I always <laughs> impress that on the students, but actually, you know, walking the walk and making sure I, we put on our protective equipment, our N95s and, and goggles and gloves and switch out cross-contamination. And, you know, I, I try to impress that even, you know, I don't know why toilet paper started, you know, you know, disappearing, but <laughs> when it came to going out and, and seeing people, with their own uh, gloves on. I would even tell my students that, hey, you know, if you're gonna wear gloves, that's okay, but understand what you're touching. You know, you're grabbing your car keys, your cell phone. I've seen people grabbing their cell phone or scratching their face. Like, you know, so I try to impress again about cross-contamination, you know, and, and, and just understanding that this process obviously is a lot on everybody, you know, whether it be us in the field or in the hospital, especially. You know, you're there inside the hospital continuously. I'm inside someone's house for 20 minutes and I get to walk out at some point. So it, it's very taxing on uh, on all healthcare providers. But it was it was definitely a lot. But fortunately, like I said, now we're in a transition point where we have a pretty good idea about it, you know, transmission of it, how to protect ourselves, whether uh, with personal protective equipment or you know, obviously with the vaccine once again. And so we have a better hold on it, which we can interact with patients a little easier now and provide, um, provide uh, adequate care for these patients. Because at one point, we were actually um, reserving some oxygen therapies out in the field uh, where we were not providing the full treatment, only minimal treatment, because there was a huge concern about uh, contamination, cross-contamination, uh, aerosolizing uh, COVID particles, essentially, uh, with aerosolized uh, medications, and so that was very problematic. They wouldn't get that until they got to the hospital into a negative pressure room. Then they would get you know, more advanced treatments or even innovation. So, but now fortunately it's, it's the new norm as, you know, as we call it now, so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's, it's crazy. You mentioned March, 2020. And I just looked at the date and realized it's March 2022. So we've oh, been dealing yeah. with this for two years now. Um, it's it's pretty crazy because it doesn't feel like it's been two years. It feels like just yesterday they were announcing quarantine and all that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely taken its effect on 
like you said, in hospital and the kind of pre-hospital um, healthcare fields. And so to kind of turn back to paramedic EMT, um, I was curious about what the job hours are like. So days, times, the length of shifts, if it's shift work, that kind of thing, if you could elaborate. Sure. Um, now I've noticed between the hospital and a pre-hospital setting, the, the shifts, days, and hours do vary quite, uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, at least from what I've always known, hospital commonly in that 12-hour day and night shift kind of a setting uh, with maybe, a, you know, a couple other variations to it. But in the pre-hospital setting on an ambulance, uh, it is, there's a wide range of uh, shifts, a huge spectrum of shifts available. Uh, commonly on a 911 ambulance, like I work on as a paramedic, there's either uh, 12 hour shifts and uh, 24 hour shifts where we would work 24 hours for one day and then you're off the next day for 24 hours. And then you go back for 24 hours and then you're off for 24 hours. So you would do four 24 hour shifts with days in the middle and then you would get four days off and then go back and do those four shifts again and then get six days off. So that's commonly uh, a common schedule that's that scene where you do these four 24 hour shifts, you know, in between some days off. Um, that's and that in itself, you know, I is, is a lot. Some people are not attuned to being up all night. You know, I kind of joke with my students that, hey, there's some people in this classroom and they're 18 hours of sleep. You know, so if you're going to work on an ambulance, um, you know, be careful. Be careful. Maybe stick to a 12 hour shift or be cautious of how you pick up 24 hour shifts. Um, you know, because then it gets into a world of trying to stay awake, falling asleep at the wheel, and, and you know, people start taking you know a bunch of these caffeinated, you know, too much Starbucks or these caffeinated drinks that are out there, obviously. But then you take it past the point where now it could actually be, you know, problematic. So, um, so the, these twelve-hour shifts that commonly in the BLS, I mentioned the BLS, BLS basic life support with two EMTs. Those are the shifts that vary greatly, where it could be like. A Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every other Saturday, 12 hours a day. Um, it could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday. It can be um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Commonly, it's like a three days uh, for the first week and then like a four days for the second week. And um, the hours can vary greatly as well. We have, at least at AMR, uh, we have shifts that start at I believe they start at around 4.30 or 5 in the morning and then run from, from for 12 hours. But then they start like every hour. So we have ambulances that start every hour starting at about 4.30 or 5. And, it, and the last one starts at about 12 or 1 in the afternoon. And they get off at 12 or 1 in the morning uh, for 12 hours. And um, AMR is uh, pretty good about um, having a wide range of shifts because they understand people are still trying to go to school, especially if they're trying to finish the prereqs obviously for um, in the hospital type careers, uh, you know, pre-hospital type careers as well. So um, there's a wide range of shifts that are available, which is pretty nice to, uh, you know, the employees, um, but it can, it can, it can vary greatly uh, between the hours. Um, so for your 24 hour shifts, is that, um, I know, I think for EMTs, they can, 
um, work out of different things like fire stations and things like that. Do you usually sleep inside like fire stations within your 24 hour shift? Yes. So in regards to a 24 hour shifts, those are usually done in a, a fire station commonly. Um, now at the fire station, you're, you have your own room. It's not like a huge like dorm room per se, but it's, you get your own room. You have a locker. Um, sometimes you have a TV, but, uh, and then there's a shower there, there's a kitchen. Basically it's a, it's just a large house where, um, you know, like a communal kitchen, you can bring your own stuff. Commonly we will eat with the fire crews. You kind of, uh, what we call buy-in for dinner. You pay five bucks and they make a kind of a family meal and you all kind of sit down and eat. Um, hopefully you can eat through without getting a call. Cause that's the other part, the stressor about, you know, being, uh, in our world is that in a pre-hospital setting, at least, is that you're there for 24 hours and you get a call, you get a call. So if you're right in the middle of eating, you get a call, well, put it in the fridge, you get to microwave it later. Um, uh, I've, I've been working 24-hour shifts and trying to take a shower and we get a call and, and we actually have a, a policy that we have to respond, uh, start moving our ambulance because it's tracked by GPS. So our dispatchers will see when we're physically moving the ambulance, not just saying, hey, we're going, but they actually won't watch the GPS. And if not, you can actually get a phone call from a supervisor and it, you know, it, it kind of goes down this, you know, this path. But I've been in the shower trying to shower really fast. And I still get a call with shampoo in my hair. Um, I've, you know, had to get dressed real quick and start moving with, you know, my eyes burning and, ah, you know, <laughs> trying to get shampoo out of my hair as fast as I can and not only get ready to go. Um, you know, ordering food. You know, we go out, sometimes we don't have time to go back to the fire station to get our food. So we have to go out, order out something. If you don't, you know, have like meal prep or anything like that, ordering food and then we get a call. So now I just lost that money and my food and now I have a call and I'm still hungry. So <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it happens, but that's just the other stressors as well that just build up to the point where sometimes, hey, you know what? I'm hangry. I, I, I need a, a Panda Express bowl. I, I need something, I need some orange chicken, you know, like just something. So it's, it can be annoying sometimes, but that's just what we do. You know, some, we don't, we can't control obviously when somebody calls 911. Um, and so we have to respond. So that's why there's a lot of uh, hope that we have uh, meal prep. We have a lunch with us, you know, we can have at the hospital, you know, once we finish with a call, we can eat a sandwich real quick or something to kind of hold us over. But uh, we'll, yeah, but typically we'll stay in the fire station. We'll do everything there and any downtime, it's kind of downtime. You know, some people are taking classes so they'll work on homework. Uh, some other people will just take a nap and try to catch up on sleep, you know, anticipating for a busy night potentially, or we'll fix the ambulance a little bit, clean it up, wash it. I mean, we're responsible for washing the ambulance, cleaning it up, stocking it, putting gas in it. So there's, there's a, can be a lot that goes into it sometimes, at least 24 hour shifts. And it's basically our home away from home. So, you know, including this ambulance. So you kind of want to keep it clean because I have to live in it for basically the next 24 hours. So, you know, we vacuum it, we detail it, you know, next to taking it through a Sophie Joe's car wash, you know, we, we pretty much do everything with it. That's great. Um, thank you for detailing. I mean, because, you know, there's all these amazing parts of being an EMT or a paramedic, you know, you get to support people in their most vulnerable times. 
but then there's also going to be some less amazing things like you said if you're in the middle of taking a shower you've got shampoo in your hair yeah. and you get a call you've got to go it's a real thing <laughs> that's and that's crazy i mean it, i think it like just perfectly transitions into my final question and it's that you know with all these pros and cons there's going to be some things that excite people about going into emt and then there's going to be some things that scare people into going into becoming an EMT. And so um, I guess, are there any like main things that people should know, you know, this is what I'm going to look forward to. And this is what maybe I'm not going to look forward to as I, you know, head into this pathway before they get into it. Um, I, I think that's, that's a very, that's a really good question. Uh, with with getting into this world of healthcare, whether it's pre-hospital or in-hospital, there has to be an understanding that, in a way, if you're not scared, it's, you're, I mean, it's okay to be scared. You're a human being. I mean, it, I mean, you can't be that, you know, we're not as desensitized as some people think. Like, sometimes, like, whoa, even for me, I've seen stuff, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. This is not an ideal situation, or I don't want to look at that no more, you know? <laughs> so, sometimes... It, those moments do happen, but the biggest thing that can get you through those moments where you do feel fear or anxiety or stress of what to do, that critical thinking, is um, understand that people call us. People call us. You know, people made it, students make it this far in the field where they have a person in front of them. It, there is motivation to get them through that process of the class and, and homework and this certification process the time, effort, away from home, family, work, before you start actually, you know, working, that it's, it's truly worth it. I mentioned the story about how I had a uh, infant child stop breathing in front of me. The other half of that story is actually doing something positive to make them breathe again. And that's the other half of the story that I was able to do something to make this child start breathing again. And it was a rush of just, no other way to put it, but awesomeness just that went through me of, oh my gosh, I directly did something to make this kid start breathing again. And it's such an amazing feeling that we can provide that and, and have that. Because during that, that transport, um, the mom was right in the front seat and she was kind of watching everything. And to hear her kid crying, whoa, was a rush for all of us. Uh, and so people have to understand that there is that other half where we do provide care where we can actually make a difference as kind of almost cliche as that sounds. We do make a difference at times. It may not be necessarily every single time. Sometimes there's calls going to be a, Oh, there's a crayon stuck in my ear or I called because um, my electric vehicle didn't have enough charge to take me to the ER. So I called 911 true story, but <laughs> You know, there's actually a lot of positive what we can do. And so it's okay to feel that fear. It's just how we handle it, how we deal with it. I think that's the biggest thing. Even to this day, as much as I can say of all these years behind me, there's still times where, like, you know, like I mentioned, yeah, it's it gets questionable sometimes. So, but understand that we can make that positive. <clears throat> we can definitely make that positive. Um, and it's exciting to go into that unknown. No matter if it's pre-hospital or in-hospital, we like the unknown. You cannot say, oh, I don't like the unknown because that's, that's 
completely what healthcare is. You know, it's 90% gray, you know, for all of us versus something clear cut, uh, like a broken leg, for example, right? So, <laughs> but uh, with that, you know, it's, it's definitely a great experience, you know, and I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. It definitely has its moments, but I think any other industry you can probably think of probably has its moments as well, whether it be a accounting, it's going to have its moments. Oh, ooh, I got that decimal wrong. Okay. There's a million dollars right there, you know? So, you know, we can go on and on about different industries. They have their own stressors and angst, you know, as much as healthcare, you know, but it's definitely a rewarding uh, field to be in. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are scared too, because I am so scared <laughs> to start working. Um, but um, that's just um, really inspiring to hear that you can use that in um, your work and just motivate yourself. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I think this um, was very eye-opening for listeners. And so here at the Committee of Culture of Medicine, we try to educate students on what type of healthcare fields they are and like different pathways they can go, they can go through. And I think um, you explored some great insight on um, being an EMT. Okay, yeah, I was happy to be here. Provide some insight on what we do. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah.